Mississippi is a unique and beautiful place that is oftentimes misunderstood by those who haven't spent time here. As we oftentimes make decisions that seem to make no sense for the people who live here. And it would be so easy to change, yet we continue to foster divisions, uh, or at least our leadership does, through the policy initiatives that they push over at the Mississippi Capitol. And the reason I believe that we don't do a better job of uh, passing legislation that benefits everyone is twofold. First, the cynical side, uh, folks in charge believe that they are better off politically to push a narrative that uh, seems to excite just the base and helps them get reelected without actually benefiting anyone other than themselves. And then the other reason is because we don't talk to one another. And the first one I can't do much about, but I thought that we might be able to improve matters if we could sit down across the aisle and talk to one another. So the place to start is with a conversation. And that's why I felt like it was important to have conversations not only with my friends, but also, and most importantly, to people who think completely differently than I do. And that if we just sit down uh, over um, a cup of coffee or a beer uh, and talk about these things, and we can find that for about 80% of the issues that we put on the table, we are like-minded. It's only that 20% that we differ on that we end up fighting over. And once you get to know a person, it's much more difficult to fight with them over these issues. So that's why these conversations are important. They're just a start uh, so that we can bridge some gaps in Mississippi amongst ourselves or between ourselves, but also that so we, so we can let people outside of the state who are listening understand what it's like to do work at the Mississippi Capitol in such a unique place and a unique time. Today, I'll be talking with Senator David Jordan, who has served in the Mississippi Senate as a Democrat from the Delta District 24 from 1993 to the present. Senator Jordan's story is not entirely unique to Mississippi, yet it is. He has served in the Mississippi Senate since 1993. In fact, he's written a book, a memoir, uh, in which he talks about coming from the cotton fields all the way to the Mississippi Senate. Uh, growing up on the plantation was uh, share on the son of a sharecropper. It was hard, and you 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 went you, you went to field before sun up, and you didn't leave there until sundown, almost dark. And you ate in the field. Their mother would get leave at eleven o'clock and go home and cook and bring the food back. We all gathered around and uh, ate it, and. Uh, we picked three bales of cotton a week. Mississippi have undergone somewhat a metamorphosis, but not complete. There have been some changes, what I mean. But, uh, uh, you know, Mississippi is a state. She has a clean, beautiful dress when, if you want to shape her as a lady, a beautiful dress on. But uh, her underclothes is not too clean. And what we actually need to give her a bath and make her and dress her up again. Today I'll be talking with Representative Andy Gibson. Representative Gibson is an attorney, and he is also a pastor. 
let me ask you how you feel about this. Um, I have several long guns, two rifles, two shotguns, uh, but I'm opposed to folks having semi-automatic weapons and bump stocks mm. and large-capacity magazines like some of these school shooters have used. Am I second, anti-Second Amendment because of those beliefs that I have? You know, I think that the federal law that we have in place that so highly regulates automatic firearms, it's been that way for a long time. I think the first automatic regulations were in like the 30s and then more recently in the 80s. Right, when the gangs were using Tommy yeah, guns Tommy in Chicago. Guns, yeah. That's right. Automatic uh, weapons... Automatic weapons are already so highly regulated, nobody can get them. Now, you talk about semi-automatic weapons. These are weapons that exist. Frankly, they're the most common weapons that that are used for target practice by firearm uh, uh, enthusiasts, Second Amendment, uh, people who like to shoot uh, these uh, semi-automatic weapons, 223s. And they are, if I'm not mistaken, the number one sold uh, firearm in the country. I think you're probably right, and yeah. I've seen them used very effectively to kill a bunch of hogs uh, on someone's farmland, and that, so I know they're, they're right. effective killing machines. That's right. I think when we have a tragedy like a shooting, uh, there's always a tendency to say, well, if we had just outlawed that gun, this wouldn't have happened. But the reality is that the, the issue as to why that happened is deeper than there being access to a gun. But shouldn't we do whatever possible to limit access to weapons that effectively can kill 15 or 20 people in a matter of a few moments? I think what we need to do is make sure that those people who uh, are who have ill intent, who are deranged, A, do not get access to them. That's already the law. And B, if they do... People should be able to protect themselves and prevent those types of tragedies. I've been to India now three times, a country where firearms are totally forbidden. The only people who have guns in India are the law enforcement and military, basically military. And I've been to villages, and they say, uh, we don't have any guns here, but all the bad guys do. They come in at night, thugs do, raid the villages destroy people and they go and the cops are late they can't get there it's a rural area and they're gone you cannot you cannot take away the fundamental rights of the people in an attempt to address an issue uh when in fact the the criminals and the deranged individuals are going to continue to break the law the only people who are going to be deprived of the ability to have a gun are law-abiding citizens so what my focus would be Let's keep that person from getting the gun, and if we can't do that, let's have the right people in place at our uh, locations that need protection to protect themselves. Who would you arm in a school? Well, I really like the the amendment that the Senate put into House Bill 1083, uh, which basically leaves it up to the school board to designate their employees, whether they it doesn't specify who it would be. It could be uh, coaches. It could be principals. It could be it could be staff people who are hired for this purpose to to uh, protect uh, the schools and, for that matter, any other locations. If you back up and look at it, 
in our country, the, the most dangerous places to be are gun-free zones. That's why the legislature in 2011 passed the Enhanced Concealed Carry. Part of the reason was to eliminate gun-free zones. When a, when a bad guy knows they can walk up in a location and blow people away without any fear of being stopped, they're going to do it. My conversation today will be with Senator Hob Bryant. Hob and I will be discussing primarily the Mississippi Adequate Education Program, and we'll be talking about recent efforts from the Republican leadership to scrap that formula in favor of a new formula. Call that? Yes, and it was after a great deal of public pressure. They finally made the contract public, but I think that's symbolic of everything about this proposal. It is not within them to do anything in public and be upfront about it. This is all this weird cloak and dagger stuff and secret meetings, and it just it's disturbing. And ultimately, ultimately, what killed the bill was, number one, the merits of the legislation. It didn't have any. And number two, the fact that they had been so secretive about everything that there was a lot of opposition, and they they didn't understand it, and they couldn't explain it. And the reason they didn't understand it and couldn't explain it is they never engaged in that open public debate where the people who don't like what you're doing tell you everything that's wrong, and you have to think about it. So there's some value in listening to dissenters. Well, you know, I can go on at length about (laughs) this, but that is the whole basis of our democracy. My conversation today is with Representative Steve Holland, Democrat from House District 16, which includes portions of Lee and Monroe County, or as Representative Holland likes to say, he is the gentleman from Robert E. Lee County. Steve's been serving in the Mississippi House of Representatives since 1984. If you um, run the math, that is over half of my 55-year-old life, he's been serving the people of Lee and Monroe counties. Steve and I are going to talk about Mississippi's health care status and our health care delivery system and how much it has improved over the years, but also how woefully inadequate it is to take care of Mississippi's poor and sick population. We're going to delve a little bit into the uh, failure or refusal of Mississippi to expand uh, Medicaid under the ACA, more commonly called Obamacare. And we're going to talk a little bit about how the legislature has changed over those years that Steve has served. Mississippi's decision to refuse money from the federal government under the ACA uh, that we would have gotten had we expanded Medicaid. So if you could just Tell the people who are listening what that would have done for Mississippi and what Mississippi would have been required to do to receive it. Well, it's it's probably the most atrocious decision that this administration has made not to expand Medicaid to include our working poor. We fund general Medicaid at 100% of the federal poverty level. Uh, we Our plan was to take it to 138% of the federal poverty level, which would have increased the income statute about $10,000 a year for a family of four, which would include some two hundred fifty to 300,000 not impoverished but working Mississippians who could have insured their families, their children under Medicare, Medicaid. 
And this is the population that currently uh, works one, maybe two jobs. These are working mothers, working with, mothers without a husband, absolutely. But, but they can't afford health insurance. Absolutely, their so employer don't provide health insurance. They can't afford it. They're they're just literally working a couple of jobs to make ends meet and and provide the basics and. <clears throat> the federal government was so generous; it was a ninety ten match for that. Well, the first two years, I think it was one hundred percent. It was one hundred percent. They would. Here's here, look. In seven years, there's never been a public hearing about expanding Medicaid by the current majority. Not one. They put their head in the sand. I, I keep hoping and praying that Trump will come out with some kind of health care plan, and we can call it Trump Care. And we can uh, slop at the trough while they take credit for doing what they had their ass and head in the sand for seven years not to do. My conversation today is with Representative Becky Curry, who is a Republican representing House District 92, covering portions of Copaya, Lawrence, and Lincoln counties down in the southwest part of Mississippi. All right, so what we had before was a 20-week ban or post-20-week post right. ban, uh, and then we had exceptions for Rape life it. of the mother, right. uh, you know, those kinds of things that you right. mentioned a moment ago. But we did not have an exception for rape under our under existing this, law, right. and you didn't create an exception for rape in your not. bill. Right. Tell me why there's no exception for rape. Well, again, I go back to uh, the... Three months. You know, if you're still struggling with this at three months, then I believe you've made your decision. Um, you know, it's not that child's fault. You know, rape is, is you know, I can't imagine that personally. I cannot imagine that. Uh, but one thing I can tell you, if as an emergency room nurse for a lot of years, I dealt with a lot of rape cases. And you as a lawyer know we do the entire um, evidence kit right there in the emergency room. We do give them medication. Um, so I'm not saying that everybody went to the emergency room and had all of those things done. But if you it was a reported case and you went to the ER, had your forensic testing done, we gave them medicine then, not only for infection, but in, in case of pregnancy, they get all of that then. Uh, now, if if you didn't report it, obviously you didn't have the luxury of having all that at that point. Right. If it was a, a rape through incest or something like that, it may, they may not, not be have reported. Been reported. That's right. Uh, but your point, if I understood you earlier, is that even if it, it, if a, a, a child was conceived under those circumstances, the mother would know it by uh, the 15-week the Point, right? And unless, you know, and I, I do realize that we have cases, uh, and I've seen them come into the ER um, of special needs children mm. that they may not realize all of this has happened. Is there any exception for that there, situation? We did not put any exceptions in this bill. Are you um, morally opposed to that or otherwise opposed to, to that type of exception? Well, I go back to I believe that life begins at conception. So really, you would be opposed to any abortion at any time if it, if you had your way? Well, um, you know, I, I'm a realist, and I don't think Roe v. Wade is going anywhere. Um, I do want to 
uh, you know, when you look at other countries and a lot of people, you know, I've gotten a lot of ugly emails, okay? <laughs> well, I'm sorry for that. Well, but, you know, most of them weren't from Mississippi. I can tell you, you know, maybe a couple, but the hundreds that I've received weren't from Mississippi. And so I really are don't. These, are these from women? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Are these uh, from women who. Mostly have... men. Okay. <laughs> Which is very kind of odd. What's but... your feeling on whether men ought to stay, just stay out of this whole debate? <laughs> I think they should. <laughs> My next conversation is with Representative Robert Johnson III. Uh, The the House falls hush when Robert Johnson moves to the well, and that can't be said of uh, about 110 of the other 122 members of the House of Representatives. I don't know if you've had this feeling, but in in my hometown, and I've watched it in other areas, you know, when you try to do a bond issue to improve your schools, it's always weird to me that that gets voted down. I'm talking about just like we want to put air conditioning in the schools, we want to do a new building, the kids need bigger classrooms or, or something. You, it get defeated because most of the people voting, you got pe- people in school, but there are a lot of elderly people who no longer have people in school who don't see the point in doing it because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect them and they think kids have enough. And so when you when you see you, when you see yourself not being able to get anything done on education, we need more money, and people saying, okay, I'm not voting for that. Education is big enough. And then you say, well, we need better roads and better bridges. I'm not voting for that. I'm not raising the taxes. But these same old people who won't vote for a school bond issue, when you when they're locked in on the north end and the south end on, and on the east end on bridges and they can't get out, they have to drive 20 miles outside of the, you know, where they have to go, then they're for a little bit bigger government. Yeah, this may be it. That 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 uh, is absolutely correct, and it may take a while for folks to drive up to a bridge and be redirected, and and uh, miss their appointment, you know, and that sort of thing. Or we run, rush into the hospital. I hope that this doesn't happen, but rush into the hospital and have to turn around and and take a ten mile detour with somebody who's ill and needs immediate care. But but eventually, it should be. Uh, should have a bipartisan effect. I mean, it's going to I, impact I think everybody. I think this is going to be it. I think this is the one where people are going to say, look, uh, I don't know if I can say this. Okay, uh, I'm conservative, and I'm not going to raise any We're not going to fix any bridges. Somebody, some some older Republican is going to be in a Rotary Club and say, that's bullshit. I'm tired of driving 20 miles out of the way to get to the grocery store. I don't think it's going to take an emergency room. And I'm like, I'm just sick of it. I think that's that's when it, and, and so this idea that it's a conservative idea, I don't even I think you begin to hear people say, hell, I don't even know what a conservative is. I just want to get my roads fixed. Yeah. If fixing our roads isn't conservative, then maybe I ain't a conservative <laughs> right. anymore. You know, you're right. right. I mean, I think people are going to start to go down that 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 thought path. Yeah. And reach the conclusion that this is just crazy. That's it for the preview episode of Civil Conversations with David Beria. We hope you will subscribe and uh, hear more in-depth conversations. Please go to BerriaForMississippi.com to support David and his race for the United States Senate. Thanks so much, guys.